the creed that Jesus ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, a place that can't be found anywhere on any map. We're here on earth. He's there, and we are here. We don't bring ourselves to where he is. He comes to be with us where we are. Christians find no end of trouble when they find, try to find Jesus by bringing themselves up to where he is. The ascension of Jesus Christ does not teach us that we have to rise up to heaven by some kind of spectacular religious experience, or by praying certain things in a very particular way or by believing really, really sincerely. The ascension of Jesus Christ teaches us instead that the Jesus who has suffered and died for us right now is right now ruling over us by his grace through his holy word and his sacraments. That very same one who has all authority in heaven and on earth to do for us what needs to be done, that same one is found by us wherever his gospel is proclaimed and his sacraments are administered. We call these things the means of grace because they're the means by which Christ brings his grace to us the means by which he sends his Holy Spirit into our hearts to create in us a living faith. A faith that looks to heaven always, that raises up its head in anticipation for Christ's return, not fear and tremble. But when we look to heaven, we also look back to Christ's cross. Since we can't literally go back to where Jesus died and rose again, our faith focuses on the gospel which brings Christ's death and his resurrection to us. St. Paul says to the church in Corinth that he was determined to know nothing at all among them except Jesus Christ, and him crucified. We come to know the true God only in the person of his Son, Jesus Christ. And we come to know his Son, Jesus Christ, in his suffering and his death for us. Look to his humanity to see his true glory. His true glory, his power, is found in his mercy. His mercy is found in his great humility and suffering and dying for unworthy and undeserving sinners like you and like me. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead proclaims that he won the great victory on his cross, takes away all of the sin of the world by burying it in his own body, 
his death and his resurrection is a radical change in how the Christ would appear to all the world. Before Jesus dies on the cross, he limited himself in the use of his divine power, though he always has quality with the Father. He's never been less somehow than fully God, but from the time he's born until the moment of his death, he's covering up his divine majesty under his humility. He doesn't avoid the shame, the suffering of the cross, claiming divine right or something like that. Whatever at all was necessary for our salvation, that is the greatest desire of his heart. Which means that you are the greatest desire of the heart of the Son of God. This leads him to a life of humble obedience that reaches its climax in his sacrificial death to turn God's wrath away from sinners, to direct it all upon himself. But after he rises from the dead, he makes it absolutely clear that his time of humiliation has come to an end. Before his crucifixion, he chose to remain ignorant of certain things so that he could learn them, so that he could grow in wisdom and stature. Now, he always makes use fully of his divine omniscience, that he knows all things. Before his crucifixion, he didn't always use his divine power, but now he always uses his divine power, his omnipotence, and uses it for the benefit of his church, his beloved children. His humiliation is given way to his exaltation. His ascension is the divine exclamation point of his exclamation, of his exaltation. He ascends into heaven to fill all things and to be present now always with his church here below. This is why the gospel must be preached to everyone. God loves all of mankind, all of us here in this world. And it is true, yes, that many people will be excluded from heaven. Jesus says, he who does not believe will be condemned. But that's not because God doesn't love them. Some are condemned, not because God didn't send his only begotten Son for them. The gospel promise is for all. It's preached so that all would believe. He wants it to proclaim, be proclaimed for all. The gospel makes this clear. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus tells the apostles to make disciples of all nations. In St. Luke's Gospel, Jesus says that repentance and the remission of sins will be preached to all nations. And here in the Holy Gospel for this evening, in Mark's Gospel, Jesus tells the eleven apostles to go out and preach the Gospel to everyone. The Gospel brings back the innocence that's lost in the fall. 
When we hear Jesus' words, he who does not believe will be condemned. We might be tempted to think that he's being too strict, too severe. Think of all the people who don't know Christ. Think of how many people die and go to hell every day. The very idea, the very thought of this is so terrifying that many people, even in the church, deny what the Holy Bible has to say about eternal condemnation. But Christ's words here aren't too strict or too severe. In fact, these words actually provide Christians with a great deal of comfort. Listen carefully to what Jesus says. He who does not believe will be condemned. Jesus does not say here, he who has sinned too much, that one is condemned. Jesus does not say here, he who has failed to complete these spiritual steps for success, that guy is condemned. He doesn't say, he who did not have some dramatic and memorable life-changing experience at their conversion, that one's not a true Christian, that one is not a believer, that one is surely condemned. No, he says plainly, he who does not believe will be condemned. Since faith alone receives salvation from God, it's unbelief alone that keeps sinners barred from heaven. The gospel isn't some new law to be obeyed. The gospel is the good news that your heavenly Father, for the sake of his only begotten and beloved Son's obedience and suffering and death, forgives your sins freely. If it is faith alone that receives this, why in Mark's gospel here does he mention baptism? Jesus says, who believes and is baptized will be saved. So is baptism that one thing that we have to do in addition to believing? A requirement that we have to fulfill in order to do the doing that needs to be done for our salvation? God forbid Lord, save us from thinking this way. We know that our baptism is not something that we do for God, but something that he graciously does for us. Not the work of man, but a divine work. God's own work. If you were here a couple of weeks ago, you probably saw Pastor Packer standing there at the back of the church pouring water on Elizabeth in the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, but that's not Pastor Packer's work. It is God's own work. <coughs> God himself using this divine gift as a means of giving faith what faith needs to receive. Faith doesn't travel willy-nilly through time and space and find itself amazingly at the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus where our sin was washed away and our forgiveness 
one for us, but Christ Jesus in his exalted state, seated at the right hand of the Father since his ascension, he brings that crucifixion to us, <coughs> brings his resurrection to us in our baptisms, marked for life everlasting, washed perfectly clean. It is the same exalted Lord Jesus who comes to us this evening in his holy supper, where he feeds us with his body and his blood. Doesn't withhold a great treasure from us, but gives us the best, the choicest. Gives us his body, which is broken and pierced for us. Gives us his blood, which is poured out for us for the forgiveness of our sins. These aren't symbols of some absent God. They are the vehicles, those things by which he brings to us his gracious presence, so that where we have holy baptism, where we have the precious supper of our Lord, you have, surely, you've got the crucifixion and the risen and the ascended. Lord Jesus, you've got it. Not hiding under a bushel. Here he is. Not in judgment, but in grace and in mercy for you. He comes to fill you with his spirit. He comes to be with you. He is still your Emmanuel. He is Still God with you. He hasn't left us orphans when he ascends into heaven. He sits again at the right hand of his Father, there again upon his heavenly throne, from which he rules and governs, from which he sustains and provides for his church here on earth by his grace, his unending grace. It is a reign and a rule in which his forgiveness triumphs always over our sin. It is a reign and a rule that draws us always to our Father. It doesn't force us, kick us in the face, doesn't terrify us, doesn't shame us. When he gathers us here at this table, he brings us into fellowship with himself so that in Christ's ascension, we see our own ascension. You've just sung that, right? In Christ's ascension, I now build the hope of my own ascension. I see my dear Savior ascending into heaven. I know that's where I go. While we live in our bodies here below, we're joined in communion with God in heaven and all of the heavenly hosts even gather together with us here in Gnosis Springs at this altar. All the cherubim and seraphim, all the hosts of heaven gather together to worship and praise our Lord with us. There's no power on earth that can break this fellowship. 
Because it doesn't depend on your strength. It doesn't depend on the holiness of Pastor Packer or Pastor Odom or Pastor Whitmer, thanks be to God. It depends always on the intercession of Jesus for us at God's right hand, where he is and remains. He is our head. Where the head is, the body must be. While we live here on earth, our true home, indeed, our true home is in heaven with our Lord Christ. Amen. Amen. Now may the peace of God, which surpasses understanding, keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus, the life everlasting.